Today we're going to start talking about alterations in nutrition, basically focusing on the GI system. The second slide talks about the function of the GI system, and we have everything, as I said before, from the rooter to the tutor. You talk about the mouth, the esophagus, and all the way down to the small and large intestines, and also involving your anus and anal glands. So you have types of alterations with your GI um, system. You have your structural defects. You could have obstructive disorders, disorders of motility, disorders of malabsorption, inflammatory disorders, and also any type of trauma or injury to the abdomen, which could affect the small and large intestine. Um, and we'll get into more detail in that. Slide four just gives you a picture of the anatomy, and you can look at that, the anatomy of the stomach, the pylorus, um, and the esophagus at the top. Slide five is just um, a kind of overall side view of what this GI system looks like. And you know you can also print it out and make notes on that if you need to. Slide six talks about the differences with the pediatric anatomy and physiology. Of course, the pediatric stomach is smaller. Um, infants is super small. That's why we always feed them just liquids until they're older and they develop a little bit more. And then we start with basically um, the baby food, which is basically pureed type, type stuff. And we, then we go to soft things until their digestive system forms a little bit more. We also have increased motility in the pediatric population of kids. And that's why babies go to the bathroom a lot. They have very frequent bowel movements. So we, we feed them small, frequent meals. Um, usually a baby is fed every two to three hours um, around the clock. And then um, we have the relaxed cardiac sphincter, which causes small amounts of regurgitation. Um, and that will sometimes lead to reflux if that's not um, taken care of properly, if it doesn't develop properly as they grow. Um, and then you have enzyme deficiencies of the liver because the liver could be immature, and then immature function of the liver as well, especially if the baby is born extremely premature. So we're gonna go ahead into structural defects, which includes the cleft lip and palate, and then you'll also have tracheoesophageal fistula, which could be a defect. With your cleft lip and palate, um, that is sometimes 50 to 80% of oral facial clefts, we sometimes don't know why this happens. Sometimes it's not even seen on the um, ultrasound and the baby is born with this problem because sometimes they may think on the ultrasound it's the um, umbilical cord laying across the face and they don't actually detect it until the baby is born. It is also associated with other congenital defects, which is trisomy 13, tracheoesophageal fistula, fistula and other skeletal deformities. Um, etiology and pathophys on uh, slide number nine. And so the thing that I want to show you about that is, as I said, most likely we don't know what the common cause is, but some factors could be genetics, smoking, a mother who is diabetic, or certain medications, especially during the first trimester, such as topiramate or valproic acid. These medications are given most of the time for seizure activity, but also more commonly they're given for um, people who suffer from migraines. And most 
likely the mother doesn't the woman doesn't know she's pregnant until she's well into the first trimester um, so this could pose a problem and also new information has said that some women who take um, this is just a side note some women who've been on antidepressants also it could um, cause some cleft problem facial deformities or also cardiac problems as well so slide 10 shows you what a partial cleft lip looks like and then what a complete cleft looks like. 11 gives you more of a um, major deformity there. And then um, 12 will show you the cleft palate. The next slide, number 13, is extreme cleft palate. And we have to really work with this baby for feeding problems and things like that because that is severe in the palate. So even if the baby is able to latch on, it will have problems holding on to the nipple of the bottle or the breast. And so um, that is going to require a lot of work with this baby to uh, fix this type of problem. Sometimes oral maxillofacial will be called in and sometimes they are able to make an appliance for the baby that snaps in until they can do the surgery for correction there. Um, slide 14 talks about uh, treatment treatment modifications and feeding modifications that we would do with these babies. Surgery is most likely what's going to happen, but until surgery, we would do feeding modifications. So it may be that we do a different type of nipple with the baby versus the regular nipple on the bottle. We may have to ask the mom just to pump. And if it's so severe that the baby is unable to latch on the breast or the nipple, we would feed them via a feeding tube where it be nasogastric or it could be orogastric, just so that the baby can get enough nutrition to stay healthy and grow. Usually we work the baby up to do the repair of the cleft lip within the first six months of life. Um, and the cleft palate could be in six to 24 months. So if they have the combo of the cleft lip and palate around six to eight months old is when we do this surgery together. We also have a collaborative team that's working with this infant and the family. Plastic surgery is always involved because it is, you know, everyone's living in this social media, Facebook, Instagram life, and it's very hard for the parents as far as bonding with the baby. They're not posting a lot of pictures. They're not going to get professional pictures made. So, um, Plastics get involved, gets involved to make sure that there's very minimal scarring once the surgery is done. And then oral surgery to make sure that the palate is closed properly so that once the baby starts to get teeth and especially the adult teeth that they come in properly and that they don't have any speech problems. So speech and audiology is also involved in otolaryngology. Once the surgeries are complete, they go for follow-ups to make sure that they don't have any issues there as well. For nursing, once the baby is born and the parents or caregivers actually see the baby for the first time, it is going to be a shock to them. And so we do promote bonding. We do as best we can. And as I said, everyone is living in the social media life. And so now the family may choose to not send out or they may choose to send out birth announcements, but without a picture. And then the coworkers and other family are asking why haven't you posted pictures so you can have them doing a creative way of pictures maybe with just holding the baby's feet or holding the baby's hands 
um, encouraging them to dress the baby, do all they can to hold the baby and bond with the baby and not let the baby feel that they are being, that the child is being rejected. Um, and so let them talk it out, express their feelings, and also provide kind and reassurance with them. There are support groups out there. It's also very helpful to show some before and after pictures that the plastic surgeons um, of patients that the plastic surgeons have worked on. Um, a lot of plastic, plastic surgeons have these pictures in their office with the permission of sharing from the parents because of HIPAA. So they have, the parents have signed photo consent so that um, other people can see how well the corrections go. And then with the baby, we're focusing on providing satisfaction of sucking needs. They may not be able to eat by mouth the regular way because we worry about aspiration and things like that. So as I said, they may have an oral gastric tube or a nasogastric tube. Eventually, sometimes as they get a little bit older, we may um, insert a, a gastric tube where it's like the little Mickey button into their abdomen. But they still want to suck and we want to provide them with, with their sucking needs so that their taste buds don't dry up and they don't develop an oral aversion to food and things like that. So um, we still provide them with a pacifier or um, occupational therapy will work with them also to do little oral exercises with them so that they don't lose their um, reflex to suck. And so um, if it's a breastfeeding mom, we'll have lactation consultant help with them and show them, and also occupational therapy sometimes helps them to show them different holding techniques to help position the baby so that the baby can latch onto the breast properly. Um, with the bottle feeding, we have a different type of bottle with the compressible, um, the bottle is compressible and it has a longer nipple to go further back in the mouth so that the baby can um, suck, swallow, and get all of that combination um, in and no aspiration happens. Keeping the baby upright during and after feeding so that, as I said, we, we keep them on reflux and aspiration precautions. And then um, making sure that they are burped properly we, we take the bottle out of their mouth and burp them at frequent intervals during the feeding and also after. So uh, slide 16 shows you the cleft and lip and palate bottle. So the bottle part is very soft and we're able to squeeze that. And as you see, the nipple is a little bit um, elongated and it's a different formed type of nipple. Slide 17 shows you about getting prepared for surgery. So you'll want to have a look at that. And then um, post-operatively nursing care on slide 18. The main thing that we're doing with these kids is managing their airway and make sure that that stays patent and open and we don't have any issues with that. And then we're monitoring them carefully for aspiration. You'll wanna keep a bulb suction at the bedside so that if they do start to choke because they will be drooling a lot, you'll just wanna go a little bit into just a little bit past the lip and suction all of that mucus out. We're not putting hard suction in there because we don't want to mess up the surgical site, the sutures and things like that. They will be monitored 24 hours because most likely this would be the first time they've ever gone under anesthesia. And so we wanna monitor them, uh, their heart rate, their pulse ox and their respiratory rate to make sure they're not having any adverse effects for that. And this is also a good way to monitor to see if they're having any um, pain. And so, um, 
wound care, this baby would either be positioned on their back or to their side so that they can drool and they're, that they're not, um, they, and they're, or they're able to turn their head. But we don't want to put them on their abdomen because some babies will rub their face in the bed and mess up the sutures. So also they will have bilateral elbow immobilizers and we keep those on around the clock for the first two weeks or more. And that's so that they're not able to reach and, and touch their mouth. And as I said, mess up the surgical site and the sutures. So um, we talk to the parents and we educate them, the parents or the caregiver about taking the immobilizers off only to bathe them and watching them very closely. And then during the day, They'll take one arm off at a time to allow the baby to exercise his or her arm, and then they put them back on. And also, if the baby, if they're holding the baby on their shoulder to make sure that the baby doesn't rub his, his or her face in their shoulder um, and mess up the sutures. No metal utensils or straws because some babies are way more advanced now and they um, are using um, straws to drink and so we just make sure that there's nothing metal. So soft, little soft coated straws or um, um, soft coated utensils and no straws because the um, action of them sucking with the straw could also pull the sutures. Um, we don't do pacifiers. And then um, pain medication, mostly around the clock for the first 48 hours to keep them comfortable and keep them from crying. And then um, cleaning the suture line. The physician usually writes the orders about how they want the suture line to be clean. Sometimes it's just with sterile water and just patting it dry um, because there, there may be like some dry blood around there or there might be some formula from when the baby first starts eating or breast milk or something like that. And as I said, keeping the elbow restraints on, we call them no-nos in the hospital, but keeping those elbow restraints on and making sure that the baby isn't able to wiggle out of them and get to that surgical site. Um, Nutrition-wise, post-operatively, the doctor will write the orders about how to resume feeding. Some doctors write clears until they know that the baby is not gonna vomit, and then they can do half-strength formula or breast milk and then work back up to their full strength. And some physicians write for them just to go back to their regular diet once they're stable. Um, a lot of times, right before they finish up the surgery, the anesthesiologist will administer some type of anti-nausea medication. And then um, we set up a syringe with a rubber tip. It's basically the red robin catheter. We just cut that, um, cut most of it off and put the tip of it onto a syringe so that the um, parent or caregiver can just dribble a little bit of liquid into their mouth at a time and then allow them to swallow. And then, um, continue to do that, making sure the baby is sitting upright during and after feeding with continuing with the frequent burping and then cleaning the suture lines based on the physician's um, orders and then providing a high calorie soft food diet for a cleft palate repairs so that that can heal properly and then um, keeping things away from the baby that could possibly mess up the suture line. As I said, straws, pacifiers, their fingers and spoons. And then um, the parent or caregiver will get appointments set up to go to the dentist or orthodontist once the patient reaches a certain age. They will come back for follow-ups. 
they will be uh, referred to speech therapy. There are other community resources, and then they will also have a hearing screen as well. Numbers tw slide number 20 shows you the uh, cleft lip post-op care, and so you'll need to pay attention to this one. And then um, we're going into 21 TEF or tracheoesophageal fistula. Um, this usually happens during the fourth or fifth week of gestation. A lot of times a woman may not even know that she's pregnant at that point. So um, this is when the esophagus and trachea fail to separate into two tubes. How would we know that this might be happening with the baby? Of course, this is um, internal and it may not show up on an ultrasound. So signs and symptoms once the baby is born, we really pay attention to the three C's, cyanosis, choking, and coughing. So a lot of times we're allowing the babies to room in with the moms and the mom might call and say, I'm trying to feed my baby, but something is wrong. The baby's turning blue. There's formula coming out of the nose and the mouth. There's a lot of choking. The baby is sneezing a lot. So this is when the nurses go in and they bring the baby back to the nursery and they put the baby on a pulse ox and they start observing. They'll definitely suction the baby and then um, they'll start to observe what's going on. And they may try to feed the baby just a little bit of um, formula or something to see exactly what the mechanism is going on, what's happening. And then they may notice the, exactly what the mom said was going on. And so at that point, the baby becomes NPO. So you see, see slide 22 shows you how things are malformed here. 23, as I said, the three C's, you need to remember this, the choking, coughing, and the cyanosis. Um, Nursing-wise, this does require a surgical intervention. So as I said, you'll place the baby MPO. You'll make sure that you keep the airway patent. Um, the physician will tell you that this baby will need an NG tube placed. So um, it will be placed to low intermittent suction. You'll keep the baby's head of the bed up. The baby will be on all monitors, cardiorespiratory monitor, we're looking at the um, O2 saturation, the respiratory rate, the heart rate, and you'll be doing frequent assessments and monitoring vital signs also. So um, 25 shows you the different, um, how uh, tracheoesophageal, the different formations and stuff. And so um, it shows you the severity of how bad it could go. I'm going to skip two to skip through to um, slide 28, I'll need you to watch that video of how tracheoesophageal um, fistula is repaired. And afterwards, um, post-op care, we're definitely doing um, a very frequent check on this baby. We're keeping the airway patent. We're doing a respiratory assessment. We're making sure that um, they're on the monitor and that they look good. Their respiratory rate, their heart rate, their um, oxygen saturation is okay. We're gonna have them on some IV fluids. They're still gonna be NPO and making sure their I's and O's are correct. Um, nutrition wise, it just depends on um, exactly what this baby's needs are. They might be on um, parenteral nutrition through a um, pick line or a central line or some type of situation like that. Um, and then they will be uh, most likely on a bed with a warmer for thermal regulation for a while. And we're making sure that they don't have any signs and symptoms or infection of infection. They will have lots of tubes going on. They will have um, a chest tube 
an NG tube and a G tube. The chest tube will be to suction. Other tubes will be draining um, and we won't be using them to feed yet. And then um, allowing the parent or caregiver to come in and see the baby, but with low stimulation. And so number 30 is your obstructive disorders. And so with that one, we have things that are causing an obstruction to this patient and they can't get food through. So with that, you have your pyloric stenosis, you have intussusception, or you have Hirschsprung's disease. So pyloric stenosis, you see what a normal anatomy of a stomach looks like, and then you see what pyloric stenosis looks like. So it's the enlarged pylorus at the bottom of the stomach. And so it's when the pyloric sphincter um, muscle hypertrophies and it causes narrowing. And so basically when the baby takes in the food, that narrowing, it hits the food, hits that narrowing and triggers something. And then the food just comes right back up. A lot of times, even before it's even digested. So um, this obstructs gastric emptying. This usually happens within the first few weeks after the baby's birth. And we still don't know exactly what the cause is for this. A lot of times it happens more in males than um, females. And so um, we, the, uh, these babies could be misdiagnosed a lot. A lot of times they're, they don't gain weight, they lose weight. And they have several visits back and forth to the pediatrician with things like the mom needs to change her breastfeeding diet or maybe your breast milk isn't enough, let's put the baby on formula. Oh, now the baby's allergic to this formula, let's change to a different formula. And a lot of things back and forth until the baby has lost so much weight and then we decide, hey, maybe, this, maybe we should work them up for pyloric stenosis. Um, so as I said, this happens within the first weeks of life, so between two to eight weeks of life. And at this time, the baby and the family are trying to transition to their routine. They're at home, nobody's getting any sleep, everybody's trying to figure out when to feed, when to wake, when to sleep. Um, the main hallmark sign of this one, one of the two main hallmark signs of this condition would be projectile vomiting. A lot of time this vomit is so forceful that it can reach three feet away, like it hits across the room. And um, as I said, the vomit is non-bilious, but it could be blood streaked if this baby has been vomiting a lot and the esophagus is irritated. The other hallmark sign with this one is when you lay the baby down, the baby starts crying. You'll see an olive shaped mass in the right upper quadrant. A lot of times it's, it can be palpable, it, but it's also very visible because the baby has lost a lot of weight. The infant is hungry and crying and irritable, like hangry all the time because it's not digesting any of the food that you've been trying to feed it. Um, it might have smaller stools and sometimes the stools are kind of like constipated because the baby is also going through dehydration. Um, number 35 shows you the video of what the projectile vomiting looks like. Diagnosis, how would we diagnose this baby? We would go through a history and physical and then we would also do an ultrasound of the abdomen. We'd have an upper GI series ruling out reflux and all other types of things. And the lab would show that the baby is having met metabolic alkalosis. Um, and then 37 shows you what the exam looks like with that. So to treat this, we would do surgically a pyloromyotomy. 
preoperatively, we would um, admit this baby to the hospital. We would put them on IV fluids to get them hydrated and get their electrolytes back in balance. A lot of times the parents are exhausted and they're very anxious because this is their little young baby about to have major surgery. So what the nurses will do is explain everything to the parents and then allow them to rest. Sometimes the baby is so irritable that the nurses may take the baby out of the room and allow the parents to rest and just kind of walk the baby around the halls or have the baby in the nurse's station. So the parents can rest in order to be competent enough to sign papers and make decisions about the baby's surgery the next day. Um, Post-operatively, as the baby comes back, there's just going to be a little tiny cut on the abdomen with one steri strip. This is done laparoscopically, the surgery is. So we're going to want to administer analgesics as prescribed around the clock because the baby's abdomen is going to be very, very sore because we're cutting through muscles. And you're also going to remind the parent or the caregiver to um, pick the baby up, supporting his bottom, his or her bottom, and not let the legs hang. Also, when they're holding the baby in their lap, maybe have the baby on a pillow. And as they're diapering, don't lift the baby by the legs, roll the baby side to side, and then um, don't put the diaper on too tightly. And then the physician will write the orders about um, how to start refeeding the baby. And so a lot of times, as I had mentioned before, it could be just Pedialyte, which is clears for infants, and then advancing the diet as tolerated. We're going to teach the parent and the caregiver how to look at that surgical incision to make sure there's no um, infection happening there. And then um, with discharge, we're going to let the parents know that the infant could continue to vomit a little bit after the surgery because the body is trying to get used to not having that issue. So it may happen a few days after surgery up to a week, but it won't be as projectile and as forceful as before. To burp the infant often after every one to two ounces of feeding. Keep the baby upright on a shoulder. Don't ever put, we don't put babies in, um, in car seats or little bouncy seats anymore and just leave them because of the choking hazard. Babies can slip down and get caught up in the straps that we strap the babies in the seats with now and that could cut off their airway. So now we have, them, have the parents hold them upright on their shoulder or just on their chest for 30 minutes after feedings, making sure to keep the surgical incision clean and dry until after their first um, follow-up appointment. So that would be no tub baths, just sponge baths for them. And then, um, as I talked about, not placing the infant in a car seat, um, just keeping them upright on your shoulder. Uh, slide number 40 talks about intussusception, and we're going to get into that in just a moment.